Welcome to the Signpost Inn podcast, a space at life's crossroads for a refreshing pause and a bit of reflection. My name is Brandon, and I'm really glad you're here. I invite you to join me and my friends, Matt and Peter, for a friendly back porch conversation about prayer, Christian spirituality, faithful theology, and much more. So pull up a chair, grab a drink, and get comfortable as we start today's show. And when we're done, don't forget to visit us at signpostend.org to find out more about all that our ministry offers. Welcome to the Back Porch, everyone. Today, we have a rather unique podcast for you. I have with me a new friend, Rob Goodman, who's an Anglican priest, a spiritual director, and an educator and facilitator at Horizons Ministry, which, Rob, I understand you co-founded with your wife, Jennifer, right? That's correct. As I was retiring from the Army, I spent 20 years as a veterinarian in the Army before entering ministry, and we, we were walking and kind of looking at retirement. I, I looked at Jennifer and said, so you can help me grow a church? And she said, no. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a big change. She said, no, but I'll help you grow a community. And nice. so yeah. Horizons came out of that desire to be a place where people can encounter the transforming love of God in creation and contemplation. And awesome. Cool. I understand from your website and from just talking to you, you, you have a certificate in spiritual direction from Perkins Theological Seminary and your Master's of Divinity from Fuller, correct? Correct. Cool. Yeah, and y you are the priest of, is it Trinity Anglican Church? Yeah. Is that right? Holy Trinity Anglican in San Antonio. Okay, cool. Back porchers, we met, Rob and I met at a conference for spiritual directors, and I have been thinking a lot about liturgy and the sacraments and things which for me are very important. And I'd been asking the question, how do those, how do those things um, impact my practice as a spiritual director? More generally, how do they play into whatever this thing is we call the spiritual life? And then when I met Rob, we discovered that we had similar interests and wanted to geek out on this stuff and passions about these things together and thought together, wouldn't it be fun to just talk about these on the back porch? So that's what we're going to do. And I hope that you find it useful or edifying in some way. The big question in the, as far as I understand it, kind of the biggest question is what do we mean by liturgical and sacramental spirituality? But since there's so much there that we could talk about, I think it's probably better if we try to wrangle that huge topic by taking on that first word, liturgical. And we can do whatever we want with it from there, but I thought maybe let's start there and see what we can come down to or where, we, where that leads us. Rob, probably the best thing for us to do then is to start by defining the term, what do we mean by liturgy? What is liturgical? So let me just toss the ball into your court. Unless you have anything else you'd like to say about yourself or how you come into this space, I'm ready to just jump in, but give you an opportunity yeah. first to say something and then go from there. So, you know, as I, as I looked at this, this question of what do we mean when we say liturgy, we, we all have this thing in our mind, you know, those of us who are in, from a, a liturgical background, we're like, oh, well, it's what we do on Sunday. But the, you know, the, the word itself comes from, from the Greek, and it, it means the public work. And so before it was even in, in related to religious practice, 
it was related to someone going and doing something for the good of the public. And it's come to mean the work of the people, the Leto Ergus, so, or I'm butchering the Greek, but yeah, it, it's the work of the people. And so, you know, it, it is the thing that we do that is ordered and structured to come into the presence of God. So is and, that kind of how you look at liturgy or how you would define it? Or I'm curious, yeah, if, you know, you know, we're riffing here. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and as I looked at that too, what's interesting to me about the the term liturgy being a public work was the connection from my tradition in in making who's doing the work, right? And so there's there's kind of this give and take within the liturgy of and the, you know, like immediately we jump into the sacramental, I'm sure, but for me it's the this is the the we call it the divine service and a lot of my lutheran nerdy friends are very insistent on calling it divine service as opposed to worship service not that it's not worship it's just that what who's doing the real work in the service is christ forgiving our sins and the liturgy is those is the rituals or the rites i suppose that wrap around that that you know it's that give and take and there's the God does something, we respond with thanksgiving. God does something, we respond with thanksgiving. I don't know if that's different yeah. from what you're saying. I think it's an and. I, it's just, as we talk about these big things, you know, oftentimes people get into the discussions about, well, is this right or is this right? And I think we can say, is this right and this right? And and I think that liturgy is a big enough space that we don't have to to nail it down and and basically squeeze it so tight that we drain all the life from it. But, you know, as you were talking about who's doing the work and what we do when we gather, Simon Chan wrote a book, Liturgical Theology, trying to to kind of renew the the ecclesiology of the evangelical movement. And he, he talks about what is what is the purpose of the church? Mm. And I thought that was a, a really interesting question of, you know, the, the ontology of the church. What is it made for? Is it is it an instrument to do God's will in the world? Could be. Or, it, or is it the actualization of God's will in the world? Mm. And so, I mean, if we if we think about the, the creation story, God creates everything. He makes Adam and Eve to be in his image, to be, to be in community with him. And then he gives them the work of attending and curating creation. But perhaps the purpose of creation is to be in community with God. The, the brokenness of the fall is when Adam and Eve fall out of community with God. And so if the, the church is formed as the community of God, its its purpose and its end is to be in community with God. Mm. And if we look at, at the roots of liturgy in Leviticus, I mean, that's where we get the, the roots of, wow, how do we come together as a people of God in order to come into the presence of God in community? You know, we see that that the, the end of of worship is community with God. The mm. the way of atonement. And you know, it, it's always funny to me that the Protestant looks at atonement and even the, the the previous Catholic looks at atonement, don't look at the great day of atonement. Mm. Yeah. God has said this is what atonement looks like, and we've we've tried to do something else with it. But you know, if we look at that that great feast of atonement. 
the priest cleanses himself. There, there are two goats that are offered. One, one is is the the sins of it, the people are imputed upon that goat. It's cast out into the into the wilderness. So there's there's a removal of death. The other goat is sacrificed, which is an imparting of life, and that and in that way the priest can enter into the holy of holies, and life comes into the presence of life, and the people are in community of God with that great high priest. And if I mean, if we look in our Christian tradition, that's the way Hebrews describes the work of, of the atonement of Christ is bringing us into the Holy of Holies as the, the mediator priest for our communion with God. So connect that for me to liturgy. Are you, am I, let me rephrase it and see if I'm getting you because <laughs> I'm not sure I'm understanding. That last thing you said makes me think that the way you're, you're talking about liturgy is it's not even really liturgy. What you're talking about is the church and whatever we want to call it on the, the, on that Sunday, when we do our service, we're being brought into the Holy of Holies. And that has this connection to what is the purpose of God's people, the church on earth, which is to bring us into the presence of God. I mean, that's like, it's the, am I, I don't want to butcher anything, but am I hearing you correctly? But, you know, in, in the way that I look at the liturgy that we use in, in the Anglican tradition, and, and we use the, the Book of Common Prayer 2019, and we use actually the, the renewed ancient text, which is, which is an old, it's a, it's a compilation of a bunch of older liturgies by people geekier than I. And, <laughs> but, you know, as I look at, at the, the way that that is, is structured, we have these cycles of, of, participating in atonement of coming before God, having our sins removed, having life given and responding in praise and community with God. And mm-hmm. so if we, if we look at, you know, just the very first part of the liturgy that we use, we have the summary of the law, love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. That convicts us. We respond with the Kyrie, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And then we move into the Gloria. We receive life and we respond in praise. And so that that cycle of removal of sin, giving of life, being in the presence of God is, is a cycle that, and I, I think if we look for it, we see it in other liturgy. The, the Anglican liturgy is simply the one that I'm familiar with. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and so I didn't grow up liturgical at all. When I was introduced to the liturgies that I know, the very first thing we do is similar. We we have a confession, a public confession and absolution. And so there's a res- summary and recitation of the law. In fact, in our service at my church here in town, it's great. We we have a public declaration of confession, which is a summary of the law. And then our then we pause. And since we have a screen in front, they, we rotate the Ten Commandments in front of us on the screen, and there's this moment of meditation on the Ten Commandments, and then an absolution, and then immediately exactly what you just said, the Kyrie and a Gloria, and there's this. So anyway, all that to say, I was really shocked by that when I first experienced it. And I would say that's probably the first thing that really grabbed me as being powerful here is because suddenly I had this experience of something's happening to me here. Like it was really important that I was forgiven. I experienced God's 
love and forgiveness in that first moment. And so even to today, like that's so powerful to me, like with it, on the Sundays that doesn't happen, I'm really depressed. <laughs> it's like, yeah. that's really important. <laughs> and, and you know, it, it's interesting that the order and structure of liturgy draws many people. And yeah. you know, one of the things I noticed at, at the, the conference that we went to is the number of people that said, Oh, I just started going to an Anglican church, you know, yeah. wearing a collar. I stand out and people say, Oh, you must be, yes, yeah. I'm Anglican. And they say, Oh, we yeah. just started, to, you know, there's this draw to this order and structure because it keeps us from having to make stuff up. And, and there's yeah. great beauty in things that have been rehearsed and, and spoken in the presence of God for centuries. But I've, I've also noticed that people want to make their own liturgy. And, mm. you know, one of the things that, that is often missing in that is that that cycle of forgiveness, of, you know, putting away sins, taking on life and responding in praise and you know, if, if there's one thing that that I'd love for people to know and to look for as they as they craft liturgies is to look for that cycle because as you say, it's that cycle that 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 really harkens back to the very thing that God said, This is how you come into my presence. Yeah. Okay, let me back up. So I'm trying to think in terms of let's get clear here because you've said a lot that I want to dig into, but the root of this idea of liturgy is, could I say something like this, and would this be a fair generalization? It is a regular structured order of service that has, hmm, I mean, that's a first, like that's a really broad basic definition. It's a regular structured order of service because in some sense, if that's all it is, everybody has a liturgy of some kind, right? Everybody has a liturgy. And and it's true that, that everybody has, you know, anytime we come together as a group, when it when it's more than one person, we have to have a liturgy of some sort. We we have yeah. to have a way of, of worshiping together that, that is that has some degree of of structure. order and structure. Or or we're not worshiping together, we're worshiping individually in in, in close proximity. So, so anytime we come together as a people, there, there, there is a liturgy of sorts, and and sometimes it's a very reflected liturgy. You know, yeah. there's there's a, a a deep theology underneath that liturgy. In in the the Eastern Orthodox traditions, the the word is the liturgy is our theology, mm -hmm. and and so there there is this this deep reflected way of this we do and if if you dig into it you, we do this because we do this because we do this because in in less reflected liturgies they can be i think we'll sing a song here and here are the yeah. words and oh I, I think we'll do the lord's prayer here and here are the words and you know in in it it's good it brings people together it allows us to worship together it just may not be reflected as to why are we doing what we're doing and I think there's yeah. great depth in reflecting on why are we doing what we're doing? Because liturgy, the way that we do things tells the story of, of who we are and who we are becoming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's David Fagerberg that says that liturgy connects our ontology to our teleology. So the ways that we do things, the ways that we order things mm -hmm. connects 
who we are at the core of our being, our essence to who we are becoming. And or really probably better, the way that we do things reflects how we see who we are and how we see who we are becoming. And if we if we start with the beloved, a good liturgy connects our, our very being as the beloved to who we are becoming as the beloved. Mm. Yeah, the yeah, that's, so that's what I'm trying to understand is, and I think maybe trying to help people understand is the, there's not something particularly special about the word liturgy and like, it doesn't necessarily reference this particular kind of thing or anything else. But what, what you're getting at, I hear you is saying, we structure our services, our worshiping together, no matter what we do, because we have to, otherwise it's not worshiping together. And actually kind of no matter how we do it, our theology actually does drive our liturgy. Like what we think we're gathered together to do what we think we are as a people that's what ontology i think means there yeah. you know teleology is what are we here to do what's the purpose ontology is who are we as a people why are we here what constitutes us as a people is going to drive how we actually structure our service together and so if i'm here it yeah and i don't want to be pejorative but yeah if if i'm if i'm here on sunday morning or whenever we're gathered together as the church for a very personal kind of individualistic worship moment, there's probably not going to be a lot of structure to those services if that's what's driving this thing. Because worship, how did you say it? Worshiping, what was it? Worshiping independently together. It was a great phrase. In close proximity, yeah. There, worshiping independently yeah. in close proximity. Yeah. So if that's what, and I do think there are some people who have that, that picture of what, the service ought to be, but in which case it's going to be very loose. And I, I think that there's there's this aspect of how reflected we are in liturgy and how it reflects not not only our theology but our ecclesiology, our way of being a church. Mm-hmm. And you know, as I look at what what COVID has done to churches, you know, I think it's it's beautiful that we can. If, if I'm feeling bad, I can jump online and be a part of my worshiping community and, and not worry that, wow, I'm going to miss something and, oh, I don't want to get people sick. I think that's very good. But the other thing that is done is has made it acceptable to worship from your couch. Mm-hmm. And with that, if, if my, my ecclesiology is churches for me and, and for mm-hmm. my growth, then I can I can go to the message that I want online. I can go to the music that I like online. I've chosen the carpet color that I like in my house. The <laughs> pew is comfortable. You know, everything can be about me. And and if that's if that's the ecclesiology that we have, then then that's an okay liturgy. But mm-hmm. if our ecclesiology is that the church is a community gathered in into a very unique and special presence of God to to basically to be the kingdom in that place rather than to be prepared mm-hmm. to enact the kingdom mm-hmm. outside. And I think both of those are, are, are good. There's, sure. there's a big and in there, but we, yeah. at, at any given time, we can only tell one story. And so right. if, if our gathering is to, to be the people of God in the presence of God, and that is the end in, in and of itself, then we really can't do that from, right. from St. Sofa. Yeah. 
<laughs> so different from Saint Sophia. <laughs> Do you think that's part of the draw to a more, you know, high church, more traditional liturgical style? Style is not the word I want to use there, but more high church traditional liturgy being that the worshiping in close proximity with each other, which I really am going to latch onto that phrase. There's something sort of inherently unfulfilling about that because it really is me doing everything here and me, you know, when I, when you say it's about me, that's like, that's almost more what it's about. It's more like it's me projecting myself rather than it is me receiving something. And the draw to a more communal, here is a structure already laid out that has thought to it. Why? The, here are things going on that you can be a part of with the group, with the community, with the with your brothers and sisters. Like, I think I long for that. And I think that's just because I was made that way, like to be a part of the bigger thing. And, and I think that there's, there are many reasons for people to be drawn. And, you know, the, the particularly the high church service in, in our tradition, we call it the smells and bells, interacts with with the things that we do. You have this this grand visual of the table, you have the candles, you have incense, you have the the music, you you have even the, the physical acts of worship, the the stand, sit and kneel that, that engages much more of us and, and engages us in a way that is that is actually precognitive. It influences mm. the way we think of things, and and so I, I think there's there's that aspect of of how how we respond and how we desire. There's there's also as we get into the the sacramental side of things, if if we believe that the the sacrament actually does something, however that may be, yeah, you know, that that's divided churches, it's divided peoples, it's caused wars. Right. The sacrament does something, and it, and it's God doing something in the sacraments. Then there's there's an aspect of being drawn into the divine mystery that that occurs in sacramental worship that is that is not necessarily present in the same way in non sacramental worship. Yeah, two things on that, listeners. I want to refer you to the podcast on the Lord's Prayer for the for a discussion about the word mystery. Because I had a fantastic conversation with a Jesuit priest about the mysteries of the Lord's Prayer and really dived into this idea that mystery does not mean secret knowledge. It means deeper knowledge. I mean, so when you dive into the mystery, you're not like gaining some sort of Gnostic special knowledge, but you're actually being invited into kind of the stuff of God. <laughs> and I, but, and then the second thing is just that. Yeah, I think one of the things for me that is really powerful about liturgical sacramental spirituality is exactly that it is God doing things, right? That God is present and active in this world, available to my five senses, available to my... Where two or three of you are gathered together, there I am, is a very sacramental statement in some ways because... It's not just an idea. I'm not just like sort of referencing God who's out there, but I'm encountering God in the liturgy, in whatever, whatever, how, again, however we define what's going on in the sacrament, there's something happening. And that 
for me, that's kind of been the big question. Some of the stuff I've asked about my previous way of thinking, and now it's like, where is Jesus in your service? Where is Jesus in your, you know, is he actually present in some way in, in what you're doing on Sunday morning or in the church life? And are you recognizing it as? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And, and in what, well, I mean, I think that Jesus is always present in, yeah. yeah whether, whether we acknowledge him or not, he's always present. And, but it's whether we're aware of that is, is what we're doing, making us aware of the presence of Christ in us, among us and, and through us, you the body that, of Christ. Do you think that's part of the reason for, I don't want to say fighting for, but preserving the traditional liturgy, meaning that in, it's not like it's not like God told us here's how you have to do it, but it's more to me it's more like I mean okay I want to hear you say it, talk about that in a second. but I mean it's not like it's not like we have laid down here's the exact liturgical structure you need to use, but it is based on what was happening how the Old Testament Jewish people worshipped and how the and it and it's almost like. The reason there's a, there is such a unified structure across all the liturgies, even with variations, is we've sort of discovered here are the ways that humans can are, are most helped to recognize the presence of God being active. I just that what do you think about that? I, I, I think there's a great tension line there. Okay. Uh, you know, one of, one of the challenges that I faced personally is I was so drawn to the high church. And, and I loved the idea, you know, even as, as, a, as a lay reader, putting on the, the, the cassock and the, the surplus and, and reading and participating at the table and, and swinging the, the thurible, the, the, the thing that held the incense and, you know, all of that. And it's like, man, I'm bringing people to God. Mm. And I, but I ended up recognizing that I was worshiping the liturgy mm. rather than the God that it was to draw my eye to. Mm. And, and, and I think if, if we look back through church history, we see that, that there's a, a, there's this tendency in our humanness to, to think that the human is doing the work and yeah. that the human is somehow special. And, you know, I, if going back to, to my own experience, the, there's a there's a way of looking at at the Eucharist and the, the the role of the priest, and you know one of the ways is is simply in that you know reading the words and being the representative of the people, and there, there's a goodness to that. There's also a tradition of the priest acting in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, and I really really resisted that. Um, mm. I I. I I didn't like that as, as a priest to think, wow, I, I want these, you know, I'm special enough to be Christ to these people. But then as I, as I started looking more and more, as I started, you know, living into that, that calling as a priest, I didn't want them to hear my words saying, this is the body of Christ given for you. I wanted them to hear Christ saying, that. Mm -hmm. and, and there's, there's a, a great humility to, to say, okay, this isn't me doing anything. This is Christ at work in the worship of the church. Mm -hmm. 
And and so that that place of in persona Christi mm-hmm. being it can be elevated into a prideful place and a controlling place and misused in our humanness. It can also be a beautiful way of looking at not only the service of, of the ordained priesthood, but also the, the priesthood of all believers. So, yeah. you know, that, that aspect of that, that tension of, wow, how do we find that humility to say, okay, God's at work here. Yeah. God is inviting us into community and participation. And and how can I experience that in a way that brings me to the wonder of God and and the the awe and in that that mystery and I look at mystery as is knowing without knowing. Uh, you know, God says, I'm gonna I'm gonna put my law in your heart. You'll no mm-hmm. longer teach one another, no God, for you're all no God. And and to me that's that's the the mystery is that knowing mm. that that I can't cognitively wrap my mind around how do I know that why do I know that what do I know there's there's a, mm. there's a part of that that is a deeper a deeper knowing than than our rational mm-hmm. cognitive mm-hmm. you know knowing and explaining mm-hmm. yeah it's not just propositional it's also there's yeah. a encounter element to it as well and experiential but. I guess what I hear you saying is there is a danger that I can turn anything into an idol. I can turn anything in. I can, anything can distract me from God. However, I also hear what you're saying is like an old professor of mine once taught me, and it's probably not original to him, but he's like, never, never judge something based on its misuse. <laughs> right. Yeah. And while sure I can get distracted by the smells and bells and fall in love with that that doesn't mean that there's not something and that's kind of what i'm trying to get at like there's something actually more full to that that brings the traditional liturgy that is the smells of bells so to speak actually has more of a chance so to speak to draw me draw my eyes to god and so i've always like i found i have found that the argument against the pastor or priest acting in the place of Christ, well, I don't need a man to forgive my sins, or I don't, you know, God's, I found that to be a kind of a shallow argument, because it's like, well, no, it's Christ working through, and when when that's in my mind, and I watch my pastor, my priest say to me, in the stead and by the command of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins, I don't hear his voice. I actually do feel like I'm hearing Jesus's voice, because I think I really am. Now, sure, people have abused that and misused that and misunderstood that. But if you lose it, if you don't have it at all, then it's really, I mean, you really do miss the voice of Jesus in some important way in my mind. I I think you can. I mean, you know, Jesus speaks in many ways. We we see that on the road to Damascus. (laughs) You know, but I I mean, I I think that as, as we gather for worship, if, you know, I've I've come to see the the priesthood in as as a prophetic role, mm. and that that I speak the words of God to the people of God. I don't, I don't speak my words, particularly right. in the in the liturgy. I mean, the sermon I'm not going to claim that's prophetic, but <laughs> unfortunately we put it between the gospel and the creed, and I think that fixes most things. But 
you know, when when I when I pronounce absolution, it's not me doing it. It's I am right. speaking prophetically, and it's a prophetic office of the church to speak the words of God to people. The the proclamation of the gospel is a prophetic act. The the distribution of the Eucharist is a prophetic act. This is the body of Christ. It is given for you. And so kind of a thus says the I, Lord kind of prophetic. Yeah, is that what you mean? Yeah. That's what in you know, I mean we, we look at prophetic oftentimes in our in our own way of, of saying this is what's gonna happen in the future. Right. I, I think there's there's a little bit of that, but I think most of the work of the prophet is saying, Look, here is God right here, right now. You know, look look with your eyes and see God. And mm-hmm. and so to to say, look with your eyes, see God. This is this is the body of Christ. Look with your eyes, see God forgiving your sins. Look mm-hmm. with your eyes, you are the beloved. I think those are prophetic acts that that actually speak God into being in the lives of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are these are the Lord's words, and therefore true and trustworthy, not mine. And you know, when we see that liturgy practiced over time we, we've kind of talked about liturgy in in the moment of the sunday worship the liturgy practiced over time and i love what david de silva says he says that the colics the prayers of the people the lord's prayer the psalms other forms of liturgical prayer teach us over time what to desire and what to expect from god mm. they give us language with which to approach god and through constant use dig the spiritual aqueducts through which the living waters of the spirit are released in our lives and in our prayers mm. And, you know, I, I, we've seen that in, in our community. We, when COVID started, we started doing noon prayer as a, as a family. And we said, well, let's invite other people in. So we put it on Facebook. And, you know, the, a number of people have joined and, and said, yeah, it's great to see that. It, it brought light to my day. But as, as COVID started to, you know, we, we started to gather into, into, into pods you know, our, our pod gathered on Fridays with with families with children, and so pre-reading children. Mm. And we, you know, at the end of the playtime, we we do noon prayer. And by about the third week, all of those kids knew the the psalm, they knew the canticle, and they knew the Lord's prayer. Yeah. And and so, being able to repeat those words gave words that are that they're able to access at other times. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's scripture. You know, you have a Psalm, you have a, mm-hmm. a, a, a canticle, which is either a Psalm or another portion of the poetic scripture that we recite collectively. And then, you know, the Lord's prayer, all of which are, you know, we're hiding scripture in, in the hearts of these children, even before they can read. And they know it in, in liturgy, you know, all of them, you know, we did prayers in the liturgic way, Lord, in your mercy, and everybody would respond, hear our prayer. All of them knew how to do that. I mean, it was it was this, you know, and, and some of them had no other order in their lives. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, four-year-old little boys don't have a whole lot of order in their lives. And, right. and yet to, to come in and, and to, to know this is the time that we sit, this is the time that we pray, and these are the words that we use. It was it was absolutely remarkable to to see that form in community. Yeah. The connection to the Lord's prayer for me makes sense in this way that the, and this is sort of on that same topic of why I think traditional liturgy is so good and important, but the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. 
And he responds with a structured liturgical prayer, if you want to call it that. I mean, like, here's a yeah. recite this prayer, which became central to the prayers of the church. I mean, has, has been recited ever since. <laughs> yeah. And it's not meant to be a straitjacket. It's not like the Lord's Prayer is, you can only say these words. But just like the Psalms were for the Old Testament church, and for us still today, and for Christ himself, as you say God's words back to him as a little child, you learn to pray, you learn to speak. And you you never grow past it. I'm never going to be done with the Lord's Prayer. I'm never going to be done with the Psalms. But, and this is, you know, you and I were emailing and you sent me the write your own Psalm thing for the retreat we're yeah. going to be doing. And like that, I love that because it clicks so well with, yeah, of course, as I read the Psalms and pray them, as I pray the Lord's Prayer over and over and over and over again, it shapes and forms my prayers. I learn how to pray well, how to pray in a way my heart needs to. I mean, it stands to reason that God would know how my heart works better than me anyway. So that's really powerful. But I kind of am hearing that as being extended into the liturgy over time. Like, here's one of a, here's one good argument why not to mess with a good thing. Because you don't even know the effects it's having. You don't even know the, the forming it's doing in God's people until you're there. You know, like I had a guy tell me, this is years ago, Rob, there was a, a gentleman who he had fought in Vietnam. So it, it, that kind of gives you the time frame. Very independent guy, very much a almost don't even need to go to church kind of Christian. Through me, he ended up coming to our Lutheran churches and started going, started learning about the liturgy, fell totally in love with it within like a week. <laughs> and one of the things he said to me was, if I had, if this had been how I had grown up, then I would have had scripture and prayers ready for those times in war when I needed them. Mm-hmm. And his, his, he was like, how come nobody ever gave me this? <laughs> You know, and I'm like, that's one of those things where you don't even know what formation it's doing to you until you hit the times when you need it. You know, part of my I didn't grow up liturgical either. I, I grew up well, semi liturgical. I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, and yeah. Yeah, I, I remember being amazed by, wow, the, those prayers are written somewhere when I when I actually found the, the the book of order but I, I recognize looking back that that's where I began to fall in love with liturgy but but what cemented liturgy for me we were in the the army chapel system and you know went to the liturgical service which was kind of Lutherans and Episcopalians and some wayward Presbyterians and <laughs> but when I deployed to Iraq for 15 months it was morning and evening prayer from the prayer book that that was kind of my anchor during that time, you know, mm. and and there were a lot of times I didn't feel like praying. I didn't know what to pray, but yeah. but to go back and say, okay, this is this is my discipline to do morning and evening prayer, and and to walk through that, and you know, to have that structure that gave me words when I needed to pray, but I, I didn't have the words in me. To, to give me a lectionary, the, the readings for the day, so that so that I wasn't mm-hmm. just saying, hmm, I wonder what scripture would make me feel good today. Um, mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to be to be guided into the scripture that that the 
really the the entire liturgical church is reading that day. So you're instead of worshiping independently in close proximity, you're you're worshiping collectively, widely dispersed. Yeah. And and God always speaks through His Word, even in that that lectionary where it's not it's not tied to how I'm feeling that day. It's not tied to God speaks into that day in those words mm-hmm. in in some way that you know the the Spirit moves through God's Word in ways that we don't know where it's coming from. We don't know where it's going. We encounter the presence of the Spirit, and and we simply stand in awe of, of the, the the power and the glory of the Spirit. So what what do you know about, like, the history of it? How does—you I, I, probably know more than I do, but how did, how did we get to where we have the structure that we have currently? Do you know much about that? I mean, is that too big of a question to ask right now? <laughs> oh, that—that's—it's it's beyond— what what I know that I know, okay. but it, it came out of, you know, the, the the temple tradition and the synagogue tradition of Israel formed the the tradition of the church, and you know how we got to to the specific places of you know using these prayers and and the yeah. the consecration of the Lord's Supper. I mean that just came out of the tradition of the church. You know, Paul Paul alludes to, you know, when you gather, do this, and, and yeah. gives this outline of, of of liturgy. And then as, as the church structures, that becomes structured, as the church reflects on things, and, you know, there, there's some times that the church has really had to reflect, you know, in, in terms of, you know, when, when the church became the church of the empire, you know, there, mm-hmm. there are people said, okay, why are you doing this? Why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was, there was a reflection and a, and a piece there. The Reformation is another time where the church really had to say, wow, why are we doing this? And, mm-hmm. you know, part of the, the beauty for me of, of the Anglican tradition is in that Reformation time, there was, you know, the, the king chose what way they were going to worship, whether it was going to be with Rome, whether it was going to be with Geneva, whether it was going to be with, with the, the Lutheran tradition. And so on the continent, you had all of these divisions. Mm-hmm. You had to be different. You know, well, I'm not like, like Geneva. I'm not right. like Wittenberg. I'm not like Rome. And so there's all these divisions that part of the beauty to me of the Anglican tradition is that there was one king, there's one island. And, and Cranmer's task in crafting the, the Book of Common Prayer one was to to have it in the vernacular, and two was for everybody to find a home. So, mm-hmm. you know, in England, you had all these influences between the the Roman Church and the the, the Geneva movement right. and 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 Luther and and all of those speak in and, and truly in that liturgy, you can find your home in there. And I I mean that's that's just part of the the masterwork of of that particular liturgy is that it it comprehends all of those traditions without trying to be different mm, without interesting yeah going going so far and so you you have a very you know sacramental view and a very receptionist view together mm. and can you can and, you and, divide and, those terms real quick just for my sake and for so, others so like in the 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 words that we used to distribute the host you have this is the body of christ 
given for you, preserve your body and soul into everlasting life. So the sacrament that actually does something in and of mm-hmm. itself. Take this in remembrance that Christ died for you mm. and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. A very receptionist. It, it's the body when I when I take it in. And and it works together. It, it, it's that grand and that, that's there that we don't have to, to squeeze it so hard that we we take all the life out of it. We have this and that that yes, there's there's something mysterious here in this bread that is now body and this wine that is now blood. And it does something to us and we're we're aware of that and we receive that to our benefit. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, at some point we'll have to dive into those differences. I don't I don't think this is the place, but there's you know, there's sort of a it's probably why I'm not Anglican, but that's there's something about me that's like ah, there's too many ands or something there. I don't know what that yeah. is, but I don't know. How to, I don't can't put words to that yet. But the yeah, I think the what's interesting about the history question for me is what is that it comes from. It's like how the church all the way back to the beginning has been doing stuff. Anyway, <laughs> there are there were temple rituals and those things get reflected in what we do today. And that the church in the early in the early centuries were just taking what they had been doing originally, you know, the very early days Paul and the the early early apostolic church were just they were still worshiping in the synagogues. They were still going to the temple. And then bringing that stuff into now the New Testament Christ-centered worship and you can trace back elements in various forms just I mean, even, you know, before Christ, literally, because you have, we we sing a psalm, and that's what they were written for. So anyway, I, I, I found that fascinating that, and really, I don't know, to me that's significant, that not only are we worshiping as the body of Christ across space, but we worship as the body of Christ across time. Yeah. Like, in so many important ways, I'm, on Sunday morning, not really doing anything different than... Chrysostom was doing. I mean, it, it, it looked very different. It sounded very different. But in a lot of ways, the I think what and you said this in one of our conversations at some point. Like, it's back to the beginning. The cycle of the liturgy, the story being told by what we're doing, was the same story. If that makes yeah. sense. I mean, the, um, the eternal gospel is the eternal gospel. Yeah, we 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 can tell it in slightly different ways, and we translate it in different ways. So mm-hmm. as as the world changes. We, we translate that eternal gospel in, into the, the way that the world understands it in different ways. You know, Paul had to translate the eternal gospel from, from the Hebrew story into the Greco-Roman story to include all people. We, we see that Aquinas translates, the, as, as the world changes from a Platonic to an Aristotelian worldview, he translates in Summa Theologica the, the way that the church has always believed into the new language that the people use. We see that in the Reformation. And and truly, if we're if we're open to it, we see it now as we move from modernism into postmodernism. The questions have changed. The way we answer those questions has to be has to honor the questions. But the the ultimate eternal gospel of the kingdom of God is still at the heart of, of everything that we answer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the tr- what God has done 
and the God at the center of everything <laughs> remains the same, though we may need to say things differently in different contexts so that that so that he can be seen and known. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. What do you think is the... I'm going to pick up on a thread that we were talking about a little earlier. You were talking about how how you, the four-year-old boy learned things. You know, there's an old there there's a very old discussion about the relationship between the, your theology, like your discursive belief, and your practice, and how those two things interplay. So it seems important to me, and I'll just toss it this way. Maybe it's not a question that what we do with our bodies on Sunday and how we worship together teaches every bit as much as what we say our doctrine teaches and vice versa, right? Like the way you practice is going to shape and form the way you believe propositionally what you say is true. And what you say is true is going to change the way you practice. And so I think there's another place there for like one of the reasons it's that like the traditional liturgy matters and is important to me is that it, it teaches truth. If God is really present, then acting in a certain way instills that in me. I don't, is that making sense? I'm not sure if that there's a mess to toss at. You. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting to look at, you know, I, I've been fascinated a little bit with, with neuroscience and I'm my, my fascination far exceeds my knowledge, but <laughs> there's, there's this this kind of generality that we we see a lot of things we do a lot of things on essentially on autopilot and we think about very few things mm. um, and and a lot of that is is really our the way we we visualize how things should be is what we expect them to be and we see that at play I mean there's there's this classic video of the, the gorilla in the basketball game. Have you, if you watched yeah, that, yeah. Right. Count the number of passes with the white shirt and you know, how many did you see? Seven, 12, who saw the gorilla and, and, and very few people will, will see the gorilla that comes through and waves at you. And because we see what we're looking for. Yeah. If we, if we look at, at what Paul means by the, the transformation of your mind, the, the transformation of the noose, it's not the rational side. It's not the logos, the news. Mm. It's the vision. It's the creative side. It's the imagination. Mm. If we look at, you know, repentance, metanoia isn't changing the way we behave. It's changing the way that we know. Mm. And, and I think mm. that liturgy at its best mm. changes the way that we expect things to be. It changes mm. the way that we know things. You know, as you said, this 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 awareness of of worshiping with the church across the world and through the ages. Yeah, you know, there's there's this place in in most liturgies where we sing the Sanctus, the the holy, holy, holy Lord God of of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. It's the words that the angels sing before God mm -hmm. in Isaiah's vision. And in, in the introduction to that, you know, we, in, in our liturgy, we say, and now we join our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a part of, mm -hmm. of that piece of the liturgy that 
that reminds me of Elisha and his servant. Hmm. And, and the, the armies of Syria have surrounded the town that they're in. And Elisha's servant comes out and says, hey, boss, what are we going to do? And Elisha says, don't worry. And the servant says, what are we going to do? And, and Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes. And the, <laughs> and the servant's eyes are open. He sees the, the chariots of the Lord all around the mountain. Mm. And, and there's a part of, of being able to see differently that, mm. that I think liturgy assists us with. I mean, there's, there's a part of having to see differently to, to be able to, to see this is the body and this is the blood. There's a, there's a part mm-hmm. of being able to see differently that that happens in in however we we are differently in in that that time that we gather together on Sundays whether it's you know I I, I put on a a cassock album and a stole and so I I am I am visually different we we light candles we we do those things and I I think that that most churches all churches are liturgical some of them more more reflected and more more formal than others but but in the way that we set apart sunday is different we see differently and and to the degree that that sunday looks just like everything else it we we don't see differently And, and the church doesn't call us to to be different in the world just as we're getting to know each other, I just have to say you're very gentle with your calling out things that you disagree with. <laughs> I appreciate that. I just love it. I'm just like, <laughs> I don't know if you disagree with it or not, but I just. <laughs> well, there, there are things that are different and that doesn't mean yeah. that they're wrong. I mean, I'm, mm. I'm not going to say that they're wrong. I'm not going to say that I'm right, but, but I think they, they lead to different things. And and to simply be mm-hmm. be aware of that. I mean, if if we look at the way that the church has chosen not to be different from the world in in the political church, in the the meanness and spite that comes out between churches. I mean, I, I think that's formed in many ways. It's formed as much in the liturgical church of wow, mm-hmm. you're, you're using that liturgy? That doesn't offer God. You, you're saying mm-hmm. you instead of thou? That doesn't, I mean, we, we can mm-hmm. be mean and nasty across yeah. traditions. And, but, but I think that we're, we're formed in how we do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that for me, the gentleness of, of saying, yes, you know, people who worship differently still worship. Mm-hmm. It, it's not not the way that that, that i mm-hmm. desire to worship it's not it's not the way that i interact with with the great story but that doesn't mean that they're not interacting in a way that is beautiful it doesn't mean that i don't have something to learn from them yeah yeah and and maybe it's more of a reflection on myself then because it's like as you're talking about, you, you referenced repentance not being a change of behavior, but being a change of the way we know. And I love that way of phrasing it, connecting to the liturgy, the, the service changes the way we know things it, by, by changing the way we do things. And then vice versa, right? We 
the reason we do things different as a church, as a body of Christ, is because we know, not necessarily discursively or propositionally, but we know God. We know the presence and the reality of him and what he's what he's doing in this world. So it's like, to me, there is, yeah, we can get nasty and we can argue about whether you use thou, you know, whether you use the modern language or the, the old new King James language. But there is, and I do believe there is a, I guess for lack of a better term, hierarchy. Like there is a better or worse. You know, there is a way of, there's a more appropriate to the object or to the thing. Um, it, the word that keeps coming through my head as you were talking is the word reverence. And reverence can be misused. It can be used in a lot of bad ways. But if I am in the presence of the king of the universe, the creator, there is an appropriate, more appropriate and less appropriate reverence. And I would never want to say somebody who does it different than me is doing it wrong, totally. But I would want to say there are some ways of reverence that are less reverential than others, I guess is how I'm trying to get at that. And I'm not putting that in your mouth. I'm just saying that's how I'm responding yeah. to it. And, and I, I think that there, there, there are certainly ways of worship that invite us to encounter the transcendence of God in, in ways that are I mean, I, I think there are, there are ways that we encounter that awe and wonder in the, the transcendence of God. In, in particularly in, in liturgical worship, there is a way of doing that. In charismatic worship, there's a way of doing that. In evangelical worship, there's, there's a way of, of doing that that all looks different. But I, I think that that balance between recognizing the, the transcendence of God, the, the total otherness and wonder of the God who created the universe, but also the, the imminence of God, the, the God who humbled himself and took on human flesh to dwell among us. Mm -hmm. And and that balance between the imminence and transcendence is a balance that all of us work out in worship. And and I think that there's there's a place of, you know, in 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 looking at particularly in the, the, the group of spiritual directors that we were with, the number of them that have come into a, a liturgical awareness or a liturgical tradition a desire for for that that liturgical piece, I think, is really that desire to also encounter the transcendent. I think one of the the dangers of hmm. of liturgical worship is that we only encounter the transcendence, hmm. and we never encounter. There, there's the potential mm -hmm. to to elevate mm -hmm. the transcendence to such a level that we we negate the imminence of God, the God who is with us at all times that. Wow, I only encounter God in this space, and I have to have candles, and I have to have incense, and it has to be in the space. And if it's not like that, God isn't there. You know, liturgical worship at its best shows us how to recognize God, so that when we when we depart from worship, we recognize God in everything about us. Hmm. I, I, at least for me, it's interesting because I, I, I absolutely have encountered what you're talking about, like. I know folks who basically have never said an ex corde prayer in their lives, like ex, you know, from the heart, just just talking without structure, and have sort of gotten the subtle idea, though it's never been taught directly, that you can't talk to God personally. 
you know, that you have to light the candle, you have to be in the service. And maybe this is just a function of my own coming out of things and personality, but that's never been my experience with liturgical worship. Like for me, it's been very intensely personal. And I've almost, to me, it's kind of reversed for me, like, and maybe I'm doing it wrong or thinking about it wrong, but the eminence of God, the in this worldness of God for me, my eyes were open to that being a real reality by liturgical worship. Like, that's where I was like, oh my goodness, God is not just an idea. You know, like in a really important sense, he has literal hands and feet on this earth still. <laughs> but, you know, I think part of that is is the preparation of, mm. of your congregationalist upbringing of, of that, that God is among us, that mm. really that, that, that tradition of imminence of God. When, when you put that with the transcendence, wow, you, you start to see that. And, and for me, particularly in the sacramental side of things, you know, the, the time that I knew that God loved me was at a, a Maundy Thursday service in, in the Presbyterian church when I grew up. And, you know, the lights were darkened. The, we, we actually, instead of passing the little plates of, of Jesus crackers and Jesus shots, we, we actually came up and, and received from the hands of the minister. And, and he looked at me and said, Rob, this is the body of Christ given for you. Mm. And, and it, at that moment, it was, it was very much real that this wasn't an, an event that that happened 2000 years ago that we're mm-hmm. simply remembering. It's an event that, that has continued to happen in the worship of the church and, and was happening right, right then and right there. And that mm. this was Jesus present to me and for me and in me. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. And I think it, it truly is in, in, in the Eucharist that, that we have this, this beautiful union of transcendence and imminence. I mean, we, we have this, this physical thing that we see, but it's also this spiritual thing that is, that is working and drawing us into the communion of saints in, in ways that, you know, I can try to explain, but I'll always be incomplete. And, and so we, and I think that's part of that liturgical and sacramental piece is that, we, we have that that place in that service where the imminence and the transcendent meet. I also personally believe that the Eucharist does something beyond right. the people that are gathered. And I mean, I'm not going to try to explain that, but but there there is something that happens. I think that, that heaven touches earth in some way in in the celebration of the Eucharist. That, that impacts the place where that happens, the, the geographic, the, the temporality of, of, of where it's celebrated. And so, I mean, that's why during COVID, you know, we continued to celebrate the Eucharist in, in our little family unit online, preaching mm-hmm. to, to camera. We celebrated the Eucharist because I think it does something. Mm. And, and there's, there's a, the tradition of, of spiritual reception hmm. that, that that is a part of the tradition of the church less than but 
but not less than. Mm. And and so less than, but still effective, I guess. Mm. But but so I mean, I, I think that there is something about that that union of the transcendent and the the imminent mm. and the the fullness of that, the unity of that, that is really in some ways just as much of a mystery as as the Trinity of you mm. know how how three can be one and one can be three and yes. Right. Yeah, I mean that's what I like about the. I mean that's what convinced me about you know the conversion to Lutheranism. Part of that was the, I guess, the instinct I had that these things that we're doing had to be something other than just symbols. And you know, again, we don't have to get into that, and people and people disagree with me. We we discuss this all the time, but. But for me, yes, that was so important that the and for the listeners, Eucharist just means the Lord's Prayer. If if that's been confusing to you, but, the Lord's Supper. Sorry, thank you. Yes, the Lord's Supper, <laughs> Communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, all the same word in this, not the Lord's Prayer. Thank you. Although but there that, is great Thanksgiving in the Lord's Prayer in Eucharist. Indeed. Just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> indeed. Good, good, um, good spirit. Yeah, but the the instinct that there was that. God was actually forgiving my sins in this, that this was a, you know, because in my tradition, that's the narrowest definition of sacrament is a right instituted by Christ that promises the forgiveness of sins. And so in the Lord's Supper, Christ is physically present and I am feeding on him and that is forgiveness to me, you know? And for me, that is, for me, that was just like, Oh, okay. This is doing something. This is real. This isn't just a statement. This isn't just a symbol. It's an actual act here and now in this present moment. And then also that Christ is really present. However that works, for me, that's that union between the transcendent and the imminent. Like, here is a place where I encounter, I touch Jesus. And again, however that works, however, you know, that's that's not ever been a really important thing to the Lutherans to define how it works. In fact, we sort of get angry with people who try to define how it works, but it's not really important to me. But that it is that was very compelling to me. I think it's because I want God to be real so badly. And I believe he is so badly, but that's, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, interesting that you mentioned the importance of forgiveness in that. In and I, I wonder if we use that word mean acceptance. You know that I, I want to know that I am accepted by God. I mean, forgiveness is a part of that, but I think oftentimes we we end up saying, "Okay, I'm forgiven," but what we really desire is to be accepted. Mm-hmm. You know, if you know whether whether that's you know justification or sanctification. I don't get into the systematics of that right? because they've, they've come to mean so many different things to so many different people that the, the words have almost lost meaning in conversation. But, but that, that knowing that we are enough and welcome and beloved in the, in the presence of God and, and forgiveness is a piece of that. But I, I wonder when we, when we say that, if we might simply mean acceptance. Yeah, that's. I, I think that's that touches on something that I've been wrestling with and thinking about for a while. So, for me, doctrinally, 
I think the correct statement, if I can say it that way, and I'm sure my friends will correct me if I'm wrong, but acceptance, whatever that means, that that sense that I am acceptable to God, that I am, that I am, I think I would put it this way, that God delights in having me around is made possible by the forgiveness or even maybe better. I mean, I think that's kind of like the simple way to say it, but the way I am thinking about it now is that it's one in the same act. Like, yeah, because obviously as a good confessional Lutheran, justification is the central doctrine from which all the others come. And if you if you press me on anything, I'm going to come back to the, you know, the article on justification and I'm going to, you know, here I stand Luther it. And, I'm, and I will do that. And I believe in that. However, I do think that in the way we've talked about it, we've sometimes lost that that forgiveness is driven by God's loving delight in me. You know, it's not it's not God kind of hates me and uh, just really can't stand my presence. And then this weird thing happens of forgiveness and now all the God, sudden God likes me. It's like God is desperately in love with me, pursuing me all the time forgiveness is compelled by that. <laughs> like, it's yeah. like, you know, and so it's showered on me. And so to me, I don't, those, those lines get just blurred real fast. But I think that one of the things that I, I notice is that we, we sometimes look at, at justification as an end rather than an, as a means. Hmm. Say, say that, more about that. That the end of justification is to be, in the delightful presence of a loving God is, mm -hmm. is to be able to, to receive the love of God and, and to, to return the love of God. And, and that justification is a means for that, not an end in itself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and that's, that's why, you know, is it forgiveness? Is it acceptance? Is it delight? All of the, having some different words to play with allows us to dive a little bit deeper. You, know, mm -hmm. you mentioned the, the the emphasis of, of forgiveness and the definition of sacrament for in the in the Anglican tradition we say that the the sacrament is an outward invisible sign of an inward and spiritual grace hmm. and I, I think grace is such a beautiful word that encompasses all of that 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 grace is freely given by God and accepted by us is the the circle of grace so with with all of the sacraments there's there's a a freely given of god this this pure gift of grace that is then received and and the sacraments are a means of grace a, a way a, a way a way that we receive them mm -hmm. trying to remember how you said it i i wanted to touch back on that oh the means and ends of justification what would it look like to think of justification as the end like what's when you're thinking of that way of thinking what is that look like that okay i'm justified done go on with my life hmm. that basically you know in the in the in the orthodox tradition in the eastern orthodox tradition they, they talk about the liturgy after the liturgy the way that that we we carry the liturgy into our lives hmm. and and so sometimes we think okay check the box on sunday I, I'm I'm good for six days of sinning, and then I'm I'm back at it. That that if 
if the end is in whatever we call it within that that service if it's justification if it's reception of the eucharist if it's you know if the service ends at that mm. that hour on sunday you know one lord one faith mm-hmm. one baptism one hour if, if it <laughs> ends there in, in in my purpose of going to church is to complete church mm-hmm. and, and to and to and to feel good about myself that's one thing if, if my purpose is to go and, and to be filled so that I can be emptied during the week. If my purpose is to go and, and be in the presence of God so that I can recognize the presence of God during the week. You know, there's, there's a difference in if, if justification is the end. Okay, I've done this. I'm justified. Boom, I can go on with my life and I don't need God anymore. Yeah. Or if justification is, is the means of being in communion with God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. This, as I was doing my own deep dive on like all these other things, what is liturgical, what is sacramental, that, that question came up to me in the, in the form of something we touched on way at the beginning of our conversation, which is sort of what is the purpose of theology? What is the purpose of being a church or doing this stuff? And I think what you're talking about there is sort of getting at that too. Like, why do I go to church is essentially the question that I hear you answering or asking. And if if the answer is, I go to church because that's what I do, I just I check the box of having gone to church, what does that mean then for everything else? And how does that out play out? That's going to play out very differently than if I'm going to church. And you, you named a couple different things there, but if I go to church, if, I, if on Sunday what I'm doing is being that cycle washed clean so I can be in the presence of God and feed and have life given to me, that's going to look very differently how I live it out then too. Am I hearing that right? Am I? Yeah. And I don't know that any of those, I mean, I think each of those ways of viewing things is, is incomplete at best. Mm-hmm. Take Taken in isolation. And, and I think some are more incomplete than others. I think if we, if we, if we simply look at church as a box that I check, it, it's my, my payment of premium on my cosmic fire insurance so that I can go to heaven when I die. You know, that's, probably a little bit true, but very incomplete and, and lacks the <laughs> fullness of, of dwelling within the kingdom of God. And, yeah. and so, but if I, if I go to church to know what is really real, to, to know what life in the presence of God in our temporal existence really is, then the rest of the week is, wow, looking for that in, in all that I encounter so that I can come back into the fullness of reality when, when we gather as, as the church, as the body of Christ, and then to go out into what is less real, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are, those are very different postures and attitudes. Yeah. If I, if I go to church to figure out, wow, what are, what are the five ways that I can, I can improve my life? Yeah. You, you may get some good advice. You, you may actually feel better, but it, it's still incomplete. You know, if, yeah. you, if you go and you think that church is confined in that, that time and it's sacramental and everything else doesn't matter, that's also incomplete. Yeah. And we, so, we'll search for that completeness the rest of our lives. Yeah. This is going to open up a too big of a box for us to tackle. We'll have to do it again or something because we're going to have to ran, wrap up time here in a little bit. But as I was beginning to structure this in my own brain, I was seeing like, different Christian spiritualities have different 
focuses on their what the purpose of all this stuff is. What's the goal? What's the end? What's the telos? And it seems to me at least there's a couple of clear ones in mind. Some Christian perspectives focus on transforming or conforming us to the picture of to the image of Christ. And there and this kind of has what I mean by that is there's this there's sort of a moral emphasis. Like the real point of what we're doing is conforming my behavior, my character. There's some that seem to focus more on gaining information. It's like the purpose of church, the purpose of the Christian work is to to give us information about God, to teach us how to think correctly. There are some that are focused on like in having us encounter Christ or encounter God, have an experience of God. I would describe my doctrinal background tradition as being like its primary focus is to proclaim Christ. And I, there's a lot to that word. And as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking the wrong way to think about it is to look at all of those and say, well, one of them is wrong and one of them is right. But what we're all sort because because I think we all agree with all of them to some extent. And what we're all kind of doing is figuring out which ones orbit and what those orbits are. You know, so we, we all kind of place one or something in the center of the system and the rest orbit around it and either come from it or serve it in some way. And that's what I'm, you know, that to me is my structured way of thinking about it. So where I come at it, it's like, again, as the good Lutheran justification, forgiveness of sins being kind of the center of the, of the solar system and everything else orbits around it. But that doesn't mean that justification is the end. I get forgiven, now I'm done. What it means is it inf it informs how I do all these other things. So is is the purpose of the church on Sunday and the liturgy to help transform my character into that of Christ's? Absolutely. For me, it's a question of how is that done? What's the order in which that's done? Is it to encounter and know Jesus and be with Christ in his presence? Absolutely. It's more of a question of how am I experiencing him and who is he that I'm experiencing? And that, I don't know if that's making sense. You know, you, you mentioned different traditions and, and there, there are a couple ways to look at that. There, there are traditions that emphasize a particular aspect or, or really a particular person of the Godhead. There, there are those that, that are, that are spirit focused, Jesus focused and father focused. And, and there, there's goodness in recognizing, wow, how can I include some of those those others into into what I'm doing to, to encounter the, the fullness of the Trinity in worship? And I I think our our, our humanity is too small to do that all at once. And, and, and so <laughs> and, and so our traditions coming from our humanities are too small to do all of that well. But, you know, you know, you can you can look at that as the, the charismatic, the, the evangelical and the the Catholic or the sacramental way is, 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 mm. is playing out the story in, in a particular person of the Trinity. And there's goodness mm. to that. There's goodness in recognizing, wow, the, the fullness of the body of Christ is incomplete or the fullness of, of the, the church as the image of God is incomplete without all of those, those persons and in, in the ways that we, we honor and worship and encounter the other way of, of looking is is to look at you know there are traditions that are that are Christmas people. It's all about the incarnation. There there are those that are well 
they're they're probably more Good Friday people than Easter people at times. That <laughs> it's all about it's all about the crucifixion and the and the sacrificial death of Christ. They're those that are resurrection people. There are actually some that are Palm Sunday people saying, Jesus is going to be king, and we're, <laughs> we're, we're going to make Israel great again. That's, yeah. Um, and, and they're Pentecost people. And, and you know, part of the beauty of, of the liturgical tradition in walking through the church year is we encounter all of, all of those aspects of the life of Christ for the life of the world. So we, yeah. we, we, we savor the incarnation, we savor the epiphany, we savor Lent, we savor Holy Week, we savor the resurrection, the ascension, and the, the giving of, of the Spirit to the church. And so, you know, the, the liturgical year takes us through, through all of those and forms us a little more completely than, mm-hmm. than if we simply focus on on one aspect of history of and in the ministry of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, we hadn't we have for again those for those listening that don't know about the church year, there is a traditional cycle to the entire year that we celebrate the same events and everybody celebrates Christmas and Easter, all the Christians that I know at least do. But there's between those times there are you you kind of walk through the life of Christ and and you celebrate events through the life of Christ and you do that on a cyclical every year cycle every year you do the same cycle and yeah that's one of the things that i love is that cycle forces me to think about things that i probably wouldn't normally think about maybe force is too strong of a word but um yeah it directs my yeah. attention to things i'd rather ignore there you go. <laughs> That's a good way to say it. Exactly. Yeah. Rob, I think the Psalms I, I hope... do that as well. Yeah. And, and draw us, you know, there's, there isn't a, a human emotion that I found that isn't reflected somewhere in the Psalms. Yeah. And in the Psalms invite us to, to bring those, the fullness of our humanity before the holiness of God. And, yeah. you know, to, to read through the Psalms, deliberately so on a, a 30 day or a 60 day cycle to read through the the entirety of the book of psalms directs our attention to parts of us that we'd rather not encounter and yeah. invites us to bring those into the presence of god as well yeah that's good rob we should probably wrap this conversation up i want to say thank you for being willing to just try this i don't know if we got anywhere or if we even meant to get anywhere but it was a fun conversation so (laughs) i I feel sorry for whoever's editing this yeah i mean there may not be much editing to do we may just throw it up and be like do with this what you will listeners we appreciate you coming along with us um yeah so those of you who are still hanging out with us Thanks for listening and thanks for being a part of the conversation with us. Send us your questions if you have them. Our email is podcast at signpostin.org. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on this conversation or anything, really. We'll try to answer all the emails. And if you give us good enough questions, maybe we can just... if And if this is enjoyable to you, let me know because we can certainly do more of this and just kind of riff on this, which, which I will be happy to do at any time. Rob, thank you for your time. Oh, it has been my pleasure, Brandon. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody that's here, may the grace of Christ go with you wherever the road takes you. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Signpost In, a nonprofit Christian ministry dedicated to helping people connect with God and find direction. We offer spiritual direction, retreats, and lots of other resources like this podcast. Please visit us at signpostin.org to learn more. We especially want to thank our generous donors who support our work and keep this podcast going. If you've benefited from something you've heard on this show, please consider supporting us by making a tax-deductible gift at signpostin.org donate. That's signpostin.org donate. And thank you. Thank you.